All right, tonight I'm going to speak to you for a few moments, and then uh, this Sunday nights, this month, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, children. And it's really a little bit of intimidating, and quite frankly, I've got about three messages going through my head, so I won't preach all of them, just one. But uh, thank you, Dick, I knew that you'd appreciate that. Anyone with the carnal mind that you have, you always appreciate something short and quick. But, uh, however, uh, I'm trying to think about what the Lord wanted us to do. I've I've thought about uh, our children, and of course we have BBS in August, and that's a special time. Our kids go back to school in August. We have our junior high camp coming up in a few weeks. A lot of things going. um, But I think one of the biggest things we can do for our kids is develop a, a, a secure and stable home. And uh, Proverbs chapter 15 talks about that for a few moments. I want to just kind of go through this. And then I want to give you a couple thoughts on things to do as parents. I don't think I'm an authority on this. Matter of fact, I have a lot of things that I just look back over my, uh, our, oldest, our oldest son would be 30 years old. And, uh, and just, uh, just learning to, to raise children. It's not easy to have a children, but it's really challenging to raise them. And uh, to know and then to raise adult children and watch them go on to do and serve the Lord. We have a lot of things that Linda and I are still learning. Our youngest is 11. And then we have a 14-year-old at home and a 16-year-old at home. And then the rest of them are, are uh, college age or beyond. And uh, three married. And, and uh, so we're in a little bit different stages of life. And yet there are a few things I feel like that God has given uh, us from his word, lots of things. You know, someone said, well, I wish these kids came with a manual. They do. (laughs) I wish they came with blueprints. They do. The word of God will help us uh, to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. One of the verses we're very familiar with is that fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Was talking about that this week with our, some of our staff. And, you know, a child who is not nurtured and admonished, okay, whenever there's not, there's not a, a care and a correction, they're not admonished, they're not taught, they're not corrected, they're not disciplined, they get angry. One of our biggest problems with our kids in our day, in day and time is anger. People are killing each other, just going out and getting a gun, shooting somebody, because they get angry in a moment of heat. And oftentimes it's because they've been neglected by their parents. They have not been nurtured and admonished. And it produces a bitterness inside. I sat with someone recently, and, um, and they had done some very sinful things. But they went back and said, you know, I think, really, I mean, I'm, I'm totally responsible for what I've done, but I think I'm carrying a lot of bitterness for the way I was raised, what I didn't have and what I wanted. And it's a challenging thing. And, of course, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. When people are angry and upset, they don't do the right thing. All of us have testimonies of how we said something or did something or um, acted out in a certain way when we were angry that we regret. And children who live their life in anger, Because they have not been nurtured or have not been admonished or corrected. Uh, I think there's some real challenges there. And every mom and dad, and you say, Pastor, I've already raised my kids and I've got to go through this for the next four weeks. I hope you'll come prayed up every time. Say, God, please help these beautiful kids around me. 
Help these younger couples that are raising kids. Help them to get some of these principles. How many of you that are, you've already raised your family, you, you know that there's some things you wish you would have done years ago that would have been probably a lot more favorable to your children? How many can, how can we testify to that? So many of us. Anybody, and anyone, if you're, if you're raising kids now, and in, in 20 years you'll raise your hand with us and say, yeah, I wish I would have. But I'd like to do our best to avoid some of those pitfalls because our children will pay the price if we're not right to do that. The Bible says, uh, talks about fathers that, that uh, we, we ought to uh, not provoke our kids to anger. Another thing that uh, Dr. Uh, our brother uh, Johnson, who is our missionary to Brazil, wrote a whole book on. I think it's available in their bookstore. But um, he feels like that one of the biggest reasons that kids get angry and the way that moms and dads provoke their children is when they say one thing and they do another thing. Whenever there is hypocrisy in the home, it fires them up and they're angry. Then we wonder, why do they go off? Oftentimes because they're trying to deal with this anger. They're mad. They're mad what they see. I, I sat with someone, and, and uh, their parent was a very uh, successful pastor. And they said, you know, my dad was a very good preacher, and, you know, overall he was a pretty good dad. My mom, she was a precious lady, but a, but a, but a, and, and a good lady, and she loved the Lord. And they both finished life together. But there were a season of time when we were teenagers that they... Every, all of us knew, there were multiple kids in the home, and so all of us knew that when dad was preaching and mom was in the service there, they smiled, everything was fine, but us four kids, us five kids in the home, we knew that it wasn't fine. And it was hard, and, and over time we'd see my dad preach, and we would, we would see my mom sit, to, sit in the services, and, and uh, he said, but... We knew that when at home, it wasn't good. There was tension, there was friction, there was problems. Boy, when you look at the, the lives of those young people, oftentimes you can see that there's a tremendous amount of anger that has come out in their adulthood. And, and disastrous things have taken place. Now, I don't want that to happen to my children. I don't want it to happen to your children. I think one of the best things you can give your kids is sincerity, genuine. You don't have to be perfect. Nobody has perfect parents. And I do believe that it's important we learn how to take responsibility. Children, those who are listening to me this evening, children, uh, you have no excuse to live like an idiot. Do not take, don't, don't use your parents or your grandparents or your past as an excuse. There was a group of people in the Bible, in, the, in Ecclesiastes, no, excuse me, Ezekiel. And they said, our parents ate sour grapes, and now our teeth are set on edge. It was a proverb. It was a saying. Don't blame me. Blame my parents. I got issues because of my parents. And the Bible sends Ezekiel to tell them real quickly, listen, don't you blame anybody else. He said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You're responsible for you. And boy, responsibility is something all of us need to take. You know, we've got some people that are unbelievable Christians who have endured unbelievable abuse as children. We've got some other people that are, that are, for Christians, they are an embarrassment. And they grew up in very godly homes. 
And both of them oftentimes blame their parents. Something you can't do. You're going to take responsibility. Responsibility turns victims into victors. When someone says, you know, I'm responsible for me. Well, I was raised like this. Well, start the cycle right. (laughs) Stop the cycle of sin. Say, you know what? With God's grace, I am not going to go through life as an angry young man or an angry dad, an angry mom, and go around playing the blame game my rest of my life. God's given us a responsibility to obey our parents. And I think probably the biblical age, somewhat in there, usually a a young man went to the army somewhere around that 20-year time. There's not always a responsibility, in my opinion, you have to obey your parents. Children obey your parents. But honoring your parents is a lifetime responsibility. And you do that by your conduct. I was uh, talking to Linda about that. It just saddens me sometimes to see people and they want to honor their parents at different stages of their life, but, but they, they don't honor them in their life. Their Facebook is a total embarrassment to their parents. Their conduct, their immorality, their drunkenness, their lifestyles, living with boyfriends and girlfriends, and yet they come and pat their parents on the back and, you're the best, We've, you've always been there for us. We love you, we want to honor you that day. You know, all the words you say are pretty cheap compared to living it out. A wise son makes a glad father. A foolish son is a heaviness to his mother. You want to put a cinder block on your mama's chest the rest of her life? Live like an idiot. Be a fool. A fool's mother is just continually grieved. Like uh, like I just said, wearing a, a, a stone on her chest. But a wise son, a wise daughter, brings great joy. To the Bible, whoso begetteth a wise child shall have joy of them. Brings joy to your parents. And I don't know about you, but one thing I do not want to do, and I didn't want to do when my dad was alive, and I do not want to do that when my mother's alive, or even after they go on to be with the Lord, I have a lifetime responsibility to honor my parents. I would like to, whenever someone sees my life, they think good of my mom and dad. And you ought to want the same thing for your parents. Don't talk back to them. Don't slam doors or get mad or, or snub them. Be responsive. Be respectful. But really live your life wholly and righteously and respectfully when you're not with them. That's one of the best ways you can honor your parents is when you're not with them, live holy, Live wisely. Then they'll, it'll get back to them. And you'll bring real honor to them. Somebody say, oh, just honor your parents. Like say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. That's part of it. But the biggest thing is when you're with your friends at school, live holy. Don't let some wicked thing get back to you. I always remember whenever our son went home to be with the Lord. And about the 10, 12 days or 15 days after he passed away, Linda and I had many of his friends come and visit us and tell us stories about Tyler. And we love, we wanted to hear anything they could tell us. But they told us things we didn't really understand for sure. But they said this, this is something that just blessed me. He said, you know, number one, Tyler always talked about being married. He didn't even have a girlfriend. <laughs> he goes, oh, he, told, he always told us he's going to get married early. He's going to get married early. He said he wasn't going to wait too long to get married. He wanted to be married young. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Do you have a girlfriend? He said, nope, he didn't have a girlfriend, but uh, he wanted to get married. So I thought, well, that's good. And then he would say, you know what? He would not do anything if he felt like it would hurt you, Pastor or Miss Linda. So many times we would ask him, hey, you want to do this right here? And you could just see a, a, a pensive thought. And he goes, nah, count me out. 
no, nah, I don't want to do that. I think it might hurt my dad if I found out I did that. Right? It might hurt my dad if I, if I went over here. Now, I, didn't, I didn't teach him that, I don't think. But I, I do, it forever will be thankful that he thought more about him, his dad and his mom than he thought about himself at that time. And I've done things that hurt my dad growing up, and I'm sure I did. And uh, he did things that probably hurt me. But I'm, I'm glad that he had that testimony, that he would all, they all say, nah, he was, more times than not, he would say, nah, count me out, I don't want to do that. If that got back to dad, it would hurt him. It would hurt my mom. And it wasn't like he hurt the ministry. He might have meant that, but it, was hurt, it would hurt my dad. Boy, when you love someone, you don't want to hurt them. Well, a couple things that we see here. I want you to look, if you please, back at, at Proverbs chapter 15. The Bible says, um, and I want you to look at the text verse, verse number 17. Better is a dinner of herbs, would you read the next three words? Where love is, than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. He said, you better eat lettuce soup. <laughs> better to eat a soup with some carrots in it and maybe a few cucumbers, no meat, just all vegetables, just vegetables. Eat some, eat some soup that's kind of watered down and uh, eat that. Then, and and have, uh, live in a place where love is than to live where you have a, a fat T-bone steak or a New York strip, have a stalled ox ready to be killed and, and eat it where there's strife and problems. I want to talk to you just tonight just for a few moments about a home where love is. I think love is the pristine attribute of a Christian. I think if anybody... Uh, ought to want anything in their life. They ought to want to know that, they're, that God loves them and they love the Lord. The Bible tells in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 3, if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, I hope you underline this verse. The Bible says this, if any man love God, the same is known of him. If you love God, everybody knows that. Now, I'd like to just know for the, the eight kids that call me dad on this earth, I would like to know that they love the Lord. That they just love God. I would like everybody else to know that they love the Lord. Because love is a big decision, Pastor. You know, you, you, you don't, you know, I, I think, our, our standards of holiness. If you go to this place of entertainment, or you wear this, or you don't wear this, or you don't go to this place, or you don't talk like this, or you don't watch these things. It's not so much about do's and don'ts. It's a matter of, of, of love. The deeper you go in your heart's desire to love God, the higher you live in your holiness. We want, we want, if everybody's going, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? What you ought to figure out is go down to Costco and buy a whole bunch of love. <laughs> For God, all those little question marks will just go away. When you really love God, a lot of things are just going to smooth out for you. It's so important that we learn to do that. But where love is, a home where love is. I don't know everything, all the criteria that makes for a loving home. But I will tell you, it's very important that we have that. I want to look in context, if we can. Look at verse 13. First of all, I think a, a loving home is a place where a merry heart's developed. Would you look at verse 13 and read it with me? A merry heart maketh, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. Let me just pray real quickly. Father, I want to be a blessing. And I find myself, Lord, it's just the, the topic is so broad, and my mind is probably not as sharp as I wish it were. I love our church family, and I want to help them. Love our kids. And not every family is the way you'd want it to be or we'd want it to be. Some of our precious 
girls are raising kids by themselves. Some of our men are single dads. Some of our kids are being raised in foster care. and Their foster parents are here this evening. Some things that Satan has really turned some things upside down. and Things are not the way we'd like, but I pray you'd help us to take something away tonight that would be helpful to all of us. Regardless if we're a grandma or we're a single adult or a teenager or a child, help us to walk away with things and help us to have a, a home where love is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first 13 tells us a merry heart, like the cheerful countenance. The sorrow of the heart of spirit is broken. Look at verse number 15, if you would please. All the, way, the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. I think a, a place for, where love is, where love is valued, is a place where people have a merry heart. You know, I think the more sick this world gets, the more it takes nasty for them to laugh. I think I gave you the story of the day about a man who got saved here a few weeks ago, and he, he was in discipleship, and he said, he said, Pastor, I used to love Eddie Murphy. I thought he was hilarious. He said, but I listened to him a couple times since I got saved, and that guy's got a foul mouth. He has the same foul mouth before he got saved as after he got saved, but it illuminated him because the Spirit of God is now with him. Well, i tell you what, the more filthy this world gets, and let me just say this to you, it's a fool makes a mock at sin. Only an idiot, only a fool thinks sin is funny. You know how long homosexuality has been funny to God? Not one second. You know, Three's Company, remember years ago, that Three's Company? That wasn't funny to God one moment. Married with children has never been funny to God. A person that acts out a, acts out a sexual act on television, it's not funny to God. Somebody who, who mocks his mom and dad, who flips somebody off, or says something ugly to someone, God's never think that's funny. Someone who gets drunk and acts like an idiot, God never thinks that's funny. Someone who gets high on drugs, and, and it's never been funny to God. Only a fool would make a mock at sin. But you know, a merry heart is a continual feast. There are some things that ought to be funny. There are some things I can just imagine Jesus. I remember Toby Weaver years ago teaching on the life of Christ, and he, uh, he, he, he gave this illustration, and it stuck, stuck with me over 35 years now. He says, you know, I think if you could get a snapshot of Jesus and his disciples walking, they walk for miles and miles. You would see probably Jesus put his arm around those guys and make fun of them or push Thomas into the tree so he could complain again, you know. Make fun of Peter. Peter, you're tired of, you're tired of eating shoe leather, you know. You're always putting your foot in your mouth or something of that nature. James, John, you want to go first or second? Which one do you want to go, you know? You imagine they probably joked around a lot. Boy, after his mommy come and said that, you know, hey, mommy might want you, James or John. I'm sure a little bit of that. Joking around. I'm sure there's lots of things. A lot of things in the Bible are funny. Some things that, about the guy falling out of the window, you know, as the guy preaches a long time. You know, stuff that's kind of like, well, man. And they took him up dead. <laughs> you know, it's just like, that's an interesting story. A lot of things in the Bible are funny. But, you know, sin's never funny. Sin's never funny, and don't ever think it's funny. Kiddos, let me just tell you something. If the devil and the world can get you to laugh at sin, they'll get you to accept it. You know why they want you to laugh at stuff? So that one day you'll just start accepting it. 
God does not want us to, to laugh at sin. By the way, we shouldn't even say nasty things of those things done in secret. You don't need to ever describe immoral stuff. Don't, don't, don't bring that into someone else's mind or heart. Don't talk crassly or hurtfully. Don't take any kind of a, any kind of a sexual innuendo joke or something. It should never be coming out of the mouth of a Christian. It shouldn't be coming to the ears of a Christian. You got someone who's got a potty mouth around you, always cursing or saying something, or giving some kind of, a, of an immoral connotation of what he's saying. Get away from that clown. Let him go talk to himself someplace. Or correct him. Say, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in that. But the Bible says we ought to have a merry. A, a, a love, a home where love is, is a place where hearts are merry. We ought to be able to walk into your home, and you could walk into my home and say, you know, happy people live here. I, I love it when, whenever someone acknowledges that. Man, what, what, do you, what, what makes you happy? I walked into a place of business recently, and someone says, well, you're happy. I ought to be happy. I'm going to heaven. I'll never spend a second in hell. <laughs> My sins are forgiven. I'm under no condemnation. I've got sweet friends, and I've got a great opportunity to serve the Lord and do something with my life, and you can do something with your life that would matter for eternity. Good night. Uh, we ought to be a happy people. Christians ought to be the happiest people in the world. So the place where love is, and by the way, the deeper and the more love in a home, the more joy that you'll have. The more sin and selfishness and pride, the less joy you'll have. And sad homes, and it's terrible when Christians don't have that. I understand why the world, I've been to thousands, and I think maybe 5,000 homes, maybe more than that, I don't know. I visit people, I've been in homes, it was homes yesterday, it was homes on Friday. I try to go to someone's house, if I can, almost every day. I'm not always successful, but that's my goal, to visit someone in their home or hospital or, or a business every single day. So I've been to lots of homes. I've, seen, I've been in studios, I've been in two-bedroom apartments, I've been third floor, I've been in condos, I've been into mansions and, and three-story and ranch houses, lots of people. But you know who cares about all that? But you can tell there's a spirit in the home. It ought to be obvious that this, this, this thing is, this is a Christian home. You walk in, you ought to be able to see this, this is a happy place. When people are there, it ought to be like, hey, welcome. We're so glad to see you. We're glad you're here. And boy, I think that a, a home where love is, is a place where there's a merry heart. Number two, I want you to notice this if I can, please. It's a, it's a uh, verse number 14. The heart of him that hath understanding seeketh knowledge, and the mouth of fools feedeth on foolishness. Verse 16, better is a little... With the fear of the Lord, then great treasure and trouble therewith. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is and a stalled ox and hatred therewith. I think number two, a, a home where love is, is a contented home. I think one of the things that just destroys our homes is selfishness, self-centered, self-willed, and discontented people. We're just not happy. I deserve this. You ought to do this for me. You should treat me like this. And it's all about us. And he said, you know, uh, discontentment is a, is a real challenge. The enemy of contentment is comparison. Spoke about that before, but the Bible tells in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. Let me ask you, Mama, are you a contented person? Would your kids say that? Mom is so easy to live with. Grandma, oh, you know, you can't get her. She just, I don't, you can't buy her anything. She, has, she feels like she has everything. Are you contented? Are you contented, sir? 
one of the things that God says about a, a woman, and I think about a man too. He said, if we can find a lady that uh, is meek and has a quiet spirit, there's not a lot of noise going on inside of her. She's, she's comfortable in her skin. He said, that's of great value, great price, especially if you're living with an idiot. If you're living with someone who doesn't obey the Bible, he can without the word. One of the things that God says, if I can find a meek and a quiet spirit in a woman, that is very valuable. It's of great price, great value. But you know, the first, in case we say, yeah, I hope my wife gets this one. This is what she needs. The first word of chapter 3, verse 7 of 1 Peter in the same context is likewise. <laughs> you know, sir, you need to have a, a quiet spirit. You need to have a meekness about you. It hasn't have to, you know, you've heard that story about a guy that has, tells that, you know, my, my wife or my husband has a street named after him one way. <laughs> has to be their way. That should not be our testimony. I think we need to have a contented spirit. The Bible tells us a woman dwelling in a, with a contentious woman. And the, in, in the key word, content. She's not content. It, it, a contentious woman's challenge to deal with. A, content, a contentious man. And where, where does contention start with? Only by pride cometh contention. And, and, and discontented people start banging up against people. We're not happy. We think we deserve different. We ought to have this or you ought to be like this. And this is a, this is a home where love is, is a place where they're comfortable. They're contented. It's not about your stuff. It's not about your place. It's not about your size of your house or your car. I was thinking about this. I was telling Linda this. We were walking around the block the other day talking about this very same thing. And uh, we, have a, we have a big mansion in our neighborhood that's getting ready to be sold. And, and uh, the, the owners have wanted us to buy it for, since, since the very beginning. And even this week said, man, your name is on this house. You've got to buy it. <laughs> I said, no, I don't think so. I'm losing kids as fast as I can go. They're just, they're just leaving here. I'm looking for a one-room house, just about. But, you know, as you think about that, we just think a man's life does not consist of what he has. We're so foolish, and we're thinking, oh, if you had this and this and this, then you are way up here. No, there's nothing wrong with having this, this, and this. Abraham was wealthy. A lot of God's people wealthy. Barnabas had something to sell when it came time to sell. Lots of people, what... God's blessed them, and God's enabled them and trusted them with great blessings. But the truth of the matter is, what you have is not who you are. It's not who you are. And boy, you know, you get the nicest car, you get a piece of junk in 20 years. Whatever you can get. I was thinking the other day, just getting in my car, and, and I was thinking, you know what, you know, it doesn't really matter. This is, this is just to get me to point A to point B. But we oftentimes evaluate people based upon what they have, where they live, what their address is. And, uh, but I will tell you this, there should be some people who are very poor who are discontent. There are people who have everything that are still discontent. It's a matter of your heart. And the Bible says in, Pro in the Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Apostle Paul said this, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be, if I have a lot or have a little, if I'm sleeping at the Hilton or the Motel 6, if I have a sandwich, a bologna sandwich, or I get to have something that's uh, much better than that, I can figure this out. If I have a lot or little, it can be okay. I have learned to be content. A place where love is is a place where there's a merry heart. A place where love is is a place where there's contentment. 
Number three, let's look in context if we can at the next thought. And I want to, uh, it's a place where someone will deal with anger. Look, if you would please, at verse number 18, read out loud with me. A wrathful man's. The Bible says, a wrathful man stirreth up strife. Now, you're going to see, in the, and I was talking to Brother Andy Rocco about this recently, but you're going to see in the, old, in the New Testament, it says, put, a, put away bitterness and wrath and anger and malice and clamor and then evil speaking. You can almost see there's a, there's a succession. There's a bitterness. It's just a root that bothers you, troubles you. And then, of course, it gets into wrath, something you think about, something that it's, it's bothered, but no one really knows. But, boy, when someone's anger, you know. Someone's angry, you can start telling about it. Their face gets red, their eyes get very stern. They might even hit something or stomp or have some body language. You can tell they're angry. Then clamor, just something on their mind all the time. They're thinking about thinking about it. They go to bed thinking about it. They wake up thinking about it. Now it's clamor. Then it's evil speaking. And it just continues going down a, a, a bad road. But, you know, I think if you're going to have a home where love is, you're going to have to say, you know what? I'm an angry man. I'm an angry woman. I need to deal with it. It's not because of your nationality. It's because of sin. And usually we're angry, and boy, anger, there's just no telling. You can't do the right thing when anger's upset. I've heard people tell me, oh, you know, an anger's an emotion, everybody has it, and we all have it. Jesus exercised a very firm anger whenever they, they made the, the house of God a den of thieves and turned over the tables and and it was a righteous indignation. I think there is reason for that. The Bible tells us we, our God's a consuming fire. He's angry with the wicked all day long. He says, I, I hate the wickedness. Why? Because it hurts people. Wickedness causes children to be hurt. Wickedness causes wives to be beat. Wickedness causes people to be uh, deceived and, uh, and stolen from and defrauded. All kinds of things. So if you, that doesn't bother you, something's wrong. But often our, our anger is upset. And he says, look, a, a, an angry man will stir up strife. Here's what I think kills our kids sometimes, moms and dads, grandma and grandpa, is when strife is your life. You've got it all stirred up. If you're not stirred up today, you'll be stirred up tomorrow. I mean, there are some of you, your parents have to, your kids have to walk in and wonder, how's dad? How's mom? We don't know where to pucker or to duck. Nowhere to hug or hide. No, no, it depends on how you're going to be. And you can blame your blood sugar, you can blame this, blame that, and all that stuff. Oftentimes, there's an anger that's inside. And by the way, if God tells us to put away anger, we can do it. I've watched, I've watched I think, in my, in, my, in my heart and with my eyes, I've watched men and women who have been hurt so badly as children. And anger has been, like, their life has been strife. I've watched God take it away. I've watched angry men that just changed. They blew up. It's a drop of a hat. They'd blow up. And now, they, now you can see God's controlling them. And it can be controlled. And I think the key is, is where love is. If there's love, there can be a merry heart. If there's love, I think that we can, we can have a contented spirit. If there's love, we can deal with anger. What, is, what does love do? The Bible says love covers the multitude of sins. Don't, don't be a strifeful person. You say, Pastor, I don't know if I am. Ask your spouse, they'll tell you. Ask your kids. 
We can put on the dog here, and we can come in here, and we can press each other, and we can, hey, how you doing, brother? Everything going good? Yeah. But we're a different story when we get in the car. We're a different story when we get home. And if you think for a second that your kids don't observe that, they do. They do, and it bothers them. And there's not a Sunday school teacher or a high school diploma or a college that can take that away from them. By the way, I think one of the things we can all do as parents is we can properly apologize when we mess up. You know, kids are very residual and they're very forgiving. But if you mess up, Dad, quit sitting on that bitterness. Confess it. So Dad should not have said that. I should not have spoken to your mother that way. I should not have handled that matter. I lost my temper. Would you please forgive me? I'm going to ask God to forgive me. Will you forgive me? You know what kids will do? They'll forgive you. You know how I know that? I've done it. <laughs> they're very gracious to us. They want us to. And, and by the way, you model that. Where love is. Here's, another, here's two more thoughts and we'll conclude tonight. And all God's people said. Come on, Brother Dick, I didn't hear you. Are you sleeping back there or what? Next thing I want you to notice here, and look if you would please at, at, a, at a place where love is. And I, I love this about our church. Verse 19, read it with me, would you please? The way of the slothful man is a hedge of thorns. One of the things I love about our church is I think some of the hardest working people on the planet live and go to church here. And I think, I think one thing that a, a home ought to have is hardworking people in it. Listen, it takes work to do your dishes. It takes work to dust your house. It takes work to mow your grass. It takes work to keep a clean car. But boy, I, I, it takes work to take care of children to get them coming to church and take care of them. Some folks are at home tonight when they should be here, but you know why they didn't come? Because it's work. It's like, I'm just so tired. Well, I thank God for young couples, and I thank God for middle-aged couples, and I thank God for people raising kids. They say, you know what? There's no kids program tonight, but we're going to be in church. Thank God for young men and young ladies who learn early on to work, clean your room, make your bed, brush your teeth. Do the things that need to be done around the house. Don't give your mom lip. Don't give your dad lip. Do what needs to be done. A slothful man causes much grief. I think a home where love is a place where it's a hard-working home. The Bible tells us this characteristic all through the Bible. Hard-working people bless any institution. A lazy person is a, is a leech. They just drain the life. I was talking to one of our sons who worked in a situation one time, and, and it just... Just simple things that, that, that could be done, and a lot could be done a lot quicker, but lazy people just really, really just discourage you. They slow things down. And, and if, you got a, if, you got a, if you're a mom, be a hard-working mom. If you've got a hard-working mom, help your mom. If you've got a hard-working dad, help your dad. Be like him. Work hard. Diligence is something. The Bible says, seest thou a man diligent in his business? He'll stand before kings. He'll not stand before mean or average men. He said, go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and, and, and be wise. Which having no guide or overseer, they're self-starters. They say something inside of them says, hey, winter's coming. I want to make sure we're ready to go. They have something inside of them. They have no ruler, no overseer. They provide their food in, in the harvest and their food for the winter. And then, of course, the Bible says, um, if you see a lazy person, they're going to be, they're going to, they're going to be always on the move, traveling, and like an, and then, or an armed man, they'll resort to illegal means to get what they have. They'll steal, they'll go to, to stealing things, or they just keep moving place to place because their laziness keeps them. They keep burning their bridges wherever they go. But a, I think a godly home, a, a home where love is,
is a place where there's a merry heart. There's, there's joy in the home. It's a place where we can have a contented spirit. We can deal with anger. We can be diligent. In the last place, it's a place where we've got we to gotta tame our tongue. We've got to tame our tongue. And uh, you'll, if you'll read Proverbs 15, you'll see how many references. Probably, I think I saw maybe nine or ten verses that reference the tongue. I'll let you look at that. But let's look at chapter 15, verse 1. Just read one. Are you ready? A soft answer, but grievous words. Boy, that's, if you could just practice one verse in your home, that'd be a good one. But how much we go tit for tat. You said this, I'm going to say this. You know, the Bible says, soft answer turns away wrath. Grievous words stir it up. Are you a stirred up or are you someone who diffuses? Little people, little people make little problems big. Strong people make big problems little. And they usually do it with their mouth. Usually they learn how to control some things. And I'll tell you what, a home where love is is a place where people have learned to monitor their mouth. It's a difficult thing. Let every man be slow to speak. Uh, swift to hear, so to speak, slow to wrath. I want to give you a few things in closing real quick. I want to just give you these thoughts. This is just a little bit off the message, but I want to just share it with you. If you're a parent, here's a couple thoughts. Number one, pray daily for your children. Say, Pastor, do you do that? Do you do that? Do I do that? Say, well, everybody knows how to pray for our kids. Do you do it? But pray every day that God would work in the lives of your children, that God would use your children. God would protect your children. He would, he would help them. Pray for your children. Number two, don't be afraid to parent your children. Don't be afraid of your kids. That's why they put you. If your boy needs a haircut, tell him. If her dress is too short, stop her. If there's something that's not right, an attitude that's not, not correct, let's talk about it. I'm afraid I'm going to push him away. You, you speak the truth in love. Years ago, I heard a man say this, and it helped me. Every child needs three things. Needs direction, excuse me, affection, direction, and correction. And he said this. He said probably 70% of parenting is convincing your child that they're loved. It's affection. It's praise. It's, it's, it's affirmation. Affection. When a child knows their love, then you have greater chances to direct their life and to correct them when they're wrong. If you don't have their best interest at heart and, you, and they don't know you love them, you correct them. You know, nothing, nothing like uh, correcting a child when they're, when they're not convinced. Rules without relationship will just create more rebellion, more hatred and frustration toward a parent or an institution or a teacher. A teacher, all right, I'm here, I'm here. you can do that if you want to, but if you want to, you want to be, and you have to put some rules down, you got to be strong, but there ought to be love communicated in everything we do, and especially as parents, uh, parent your children, but make sure you've, you've, you've put a lot of deposits of love before you take withdrawals of correction, before you take withdrawals of direction. You know, that, know their love, don't be afraid to do that. And then I would say this too in closing, is partner up with their, your, their mom and dad. Don't try to do it by yourself. Kids are made, they need a mom and a dad. Now, if sin has complicated things and it's not been done, you already know how hard that is. But if you can partner with, your, with their parent, love their parent, don't talk negative about their parent. You help each other. It's a, it's a biblical principle. 
Get on the same page. There are three things that every family needs. I'd like for you to tell me this real quickly. Number one is authority. Number two is submission. Number three is unity. Can you help me with that? What was the first one? Number two? Number three? Those are three concepts in any institution. We need them here at First Baptist Church. We need them in the military. You need them at your company. You need somebody that needs to be in charge. You've got to know when you're in charge, when you're supposed to submit. Not everybody. Sometimes a boss needs to submit. There's authority and then there's submission. And then there's unity. You've got to work for, to be together on this. And boy, in a home that a, that a mom and dad have authority, they understand authority, submission, and it's in unity. Let me tell you something. God made a husband and made a father to be the authority in the home. He's the manager. If there's a problem, he's the one. Now, you might disagree with all these things that are going on, but I'm telling you, you want, you want to raise children that honor the Lord? You better honor authority when you need to honor authority. You better learn your role in submission. And then you better work for unity. He that soweth discord among the brethren is something God hates. Being the accuser of the brethren is something that hurts children. I don't want to be there, and I don't think you do either. Let's ask God, Lord, give me a home where love is. A home where merry heart is the norm. A home where contented spirits, they reign. A home where anger is shoved out, and I'm not going to keep it here. A home where diligence is an obvious, everybody works hard in our home. A home where we, we monitor our mouth. We don't say things we shouldn't say. We don't speak back to our mom and dad unkindly, disrespectfully. We don't speak disparaging of each other. A home where we monitor our mouth. I think we're going to find... That'll be a home where love is.